pastor and author, scholar John Piper, has often said, books do not change people. Paragraphs do, and sometimes only a few sentences. Now, I read a lot of books, so this is a very helpful sentence. Books don't change people. Paragraphs do. And sometimes only a few sentences. Do you believe in the power of just a few sentences or maybe even one? Let me begin by illustrating the power of just a few sentences. Whether you realize it or not, you're sitting here today in this room because of the power of a few sentences. In the late 1730s, a little group of men led by John and Charles Wesley were meeting together and seeking who was God through his word. One night, a breakthrough happened. One of the men in their group, a man named William Holland, got a hold of a commentary by a man named Martin Luther a commentary on the book of Galatians. In the preface to this commentary, Luther is trying to distill Paul's main argument, sum it up. William Holland brought it to Charles Wesley and said, let's, let's read it to each other. A few of them got together and began to read it to each other. Holland later reported about that night, Mr. Charles Wesley read the preface aloud, and at the words, what have we then to do? Nothing? No. Nothing but only accept him who is the God who made Christ our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Holland goes on to explain, there came such a power over me as I cannot describe when he read those words. It was as if a great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was filled with such peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought that I saw the Savior. All my companions around me, perceiving me so affected, then fell down on their knees and we all prayed. Afterwards, we went into the street and I could scarcely feel the ground I was walking upon. William Holland then took the preface and went in from house to house, reading the commentary of Martin Luther on the Galatians. John Wesley, being one of those people who listened to Holland, said, my heart was strangely warmed and I felt that I trusted in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. So here we are in the Wesley Center of a Methodist church in the United States of America. This, my friends, happened all the way over in England in the 1730s. And historians said that spark led a giant revival across the Atlantic from Europe to the Americas called the Great Awakening. So it was just a few sentences that sparked with great power churches like this one and rooms dedicated to this man, John Wesley. When we read just a couple paragraphs 
of Martin Luther's summary of God's word? And things like that can happen? How much more should you and I anticipate actually opening the book of Galatians this morning and the weeks to come? Might some of us walk out of here today or later on throughout this sermon series feeling speechless? Overwhelmed by the good news that we're hearing? Might some of you say, it is as if a burden fell off my shoulders and I felt a peace and a warmness in my heart. Maybe some of us will be bursting into tears and exclaim, it's as if I saw the Savior as the word was being preached to me. That's my hope and prayer for us. Not just some experience, but to see the Savior. Regardless of what your experience is today or the rest of this Galatian series, it could just be one sentence or a few paragraphs that changes your life. Let's read Galatians chapter 1 then. Without further ado, page 972 and these black Bibles around you, I'm going to read just a few paragraphs. Starting in verse 1 all the way down to verse 9. Follow along as I read. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Our outline for this morning's message has three statements that I want you to believe. Three statements that I want to encourage you to see from these words that I just read that I want you to believe with all of your heart. Statement number one, there is one authority that we all must submit to. That's in verses one and two. Then we're going to skip forward to verses six through nine and see statement number two. There is one gospel that we are allowed to preach. And then back to verses three and five. Statement number three, there is one gospel that rescues from the present evil age. Quickly again, statement one, one authority to submit to. Statement two, 
one gospel that we can preach, statement three, one gospel that rescues from the present evil age. Let's read verses one and two again and see there is one authority that we all must submit to. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Right from the start, this letter is defensive. I've tried to read it in such a tone, but do you see it as you read over with your own eyes? Paul, an apostle, not. He's defensive right out of the gate. He introduces himself and he says, now let me get this straight. I am not from man nor through man. And this is not one of those ways that you try and say the same thing in two different ways, paralleling itself. He's saying two different things here. Paul is an apostle and he is not from man nor did he get sent by men. So let's first start with the word apostle. What's an apostle? Generally speaking, the word apostle just means to send. Or the noun, a sent one, so a messenger. It would be used often back in the first century to talk about a messenger even on a boat. So a boat going on a voyage is being sent out to go spread a message. So that's the general sense of this word apostle. But similar to the way we use the word elder, even in this church, or biblically speaking, if I say the word elder Phil, elder Paul Seaman, elder Ryan Fellabom, when I say that, what are you thinking, especially those of you who are church members? You're not thinking, well, Phil's an, he's an old man. <laughs> Generally speaking, the word elder means an older man. That's how we even think about elderly as older people. But in the Bible, they use the word that just means old man as a designation for a leader in the church who has spiritual wisdom like an old man has wisdom in life. And these elders are designated as leaders in the church. That's the way this word apostle has a general sense of a sent one, messenger, but then a designated messenger in the church, sent by the church. So Barnabas, for example, is a laid on hands, prayed for, sent one that goes out and sends the gospel to the nations. But that's by men. Barnabas was laid hands on by a church, by men. Paul says, that's not how I was commissioned. When I came to you, the churches in Galatia, you can read about this in Acts chapters 12, 13, and 14. He goes to the upper northern place of what would now be modern day Turkey and he starts preaching the gospel because Jesus himself commissioned him and sent him and that's what he's saying right from the start. Paul, a sent out apostle, a sent one, like an ambassador. I have been delegated by Jesus himself to tell you the good news. So let's summarize this very briefly. Apostle means sent one. The church used apostle in two ways though. First capital A apostle would be people like Paul and Peter and the 12 disciples who would have been special designated ones that saw Jesus themselves. And because they saw Jesus themselves and were commissioned by personally having Jesus say, you go out, write down these things that I tell you, speak my word to the nations. 
they were capital A apostles. Then there's Barnabas type apostles who are lowercase a apostles. And this church believes that there are no more capital A apostles, that there are only lowercase a apostles. So we sent out missionaries earlier this year, and when we did that, we were sending them out as ambassadors laid on by our hands. They are lowercase a apostles in that sense of the word. But when we're talking about Paul, an apostle, the way he means it, we don't believe that exists anymore. Unless some of you would say, no, Jesus himself, the resurrected human body of Jesus, came and appeared to me. Now, if that's you this morning, we might have a capital A apostle in our midst. So far, pastoring here, I have not heard any of those testimonies, and I'm not expecting to until Jesus just fully returns and not just sends people out like he did Paul in Acts chapter 9. So, for example, to make this point clear, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I want to show you what Paul means as I'm a capital A apostle because I saw Jesus myself. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 can be found on page 956. And all through Paul's ministry, there's lots of flack that he gets about him calling himself a capital A apostle. And so regularly in his letters, you'll find these kind of statements. So first, we'll see it in 1 Corinthians 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? And then notice the next question. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Do you see how he correlates being an apostle with seeing Jesus? And then he continues. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship to the Lord. Meaning Jesus appeared to Paul on the Damascus road as he was going to kill Christians and radically converted him by appearing in person as the risen Savior and telling him, I want you to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So turn just a few pages to 1 Corinthians 15 and you'll see exactly that story explained in 1 Corinthians 15. Drop your eyes down to verse 7. This is on page 961, the little number 7. And it talks about how Jesus was dying for sins in verse 3. He was buried in verse 4. He was raised again from the dead according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to hundreds. You see that? First to the 12 in verse 5. And then verse 6 says to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then look at verse 7. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles, last of all, to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. What he's trying to say is that all the apostles were commissioned by Jesus before he ascended into heaven, during those 40 days that Jesus was resurrected, alive, eating fish, talking, normal human body, not a ghost, real man, resurrected from the dead apostled, commissioned, sent out the 12 disciples. And so that's what's being referred to here. And then he says, but one untimely born, because after Jesus ascended into heaven, some time went by, but then Jesus reappeared back down into earth and then showed himself to Paul. And we're going to hear about this in the coming weeks as we continue to go through Galatians. He's going to keep talking about this encounter he had with the Lord in Galatians 1. 
But what you need to know is that he saw Jesus, Jesus commissioned him, and so therefore his authority to preach the gospel is not because some human gave him a teaching or a tradition or he's passing something down from someone else. He got it from Jesus himself. He's an eyewitness. So turn back to Galatians chapter 1, and notice what he's going to say as we open up these verses next week, but just to jump ahead and see what he's saying when he says, not from men, not through man. Look at verses 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's exactly what he's saying. He remembers the day on Damascus Road. I mean, how would you forget it? He became blind. He was startled. He had his whole life turned around. His name got changed from Saul of Tarsus, Pharisee of Pharisees, persecutor and killer of Christians, to now the man who's going to try and convert the whole world for Christ. That was a big day. I I think he would remember that day. And this is what he says. Three negatives. Not a gospel from man. Did not receive it from man. Was not taught it by a man. Not, not, not. That's why right from the start when we see Paul, an apostle, not, he's defensive. He's ready for a fight. And then the positive statement is, my apostleship came from the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is a foundational teaching for this church embassy. Jesus is our head senior pastor. Jesus is the head of this church. Pastor Phil is not. The elders that I just referenced are not the head of this church. All of us in this church, we submit and obey to Jesus Christ just like Paul does. We submit to Christ's teaching, his doctrine, his gospel, his ways. And we do this by listening to the recorded words of the apostles that Jesus designated, including Paul here. These capital A apostles were the ones who were to record for us how we're to know how to submit to Jesus. Some of you might remember when the, first, the church first got started in Acts chapter 2. It says in Acts 2.42 that there was this great growing of Christians, many people were being converted every day and following Jesus, and it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so it is with Embassy's church, this church here. We are to be a church that devotes ourselves to the apostles' teaching because the apostles' teaching is straight from Jesus Christ. So by us submitting to the apostles' teaching, it's one and the same to submit to Jesus himself. That's the way Jesus set it up. In fact, listen to this. Jot this down. Ephesians chapter 2. We are members of God's household. Anyone here? Say, yes, I'm a member of the church, the household of God. Well, then you are built on the foundation of the apostles with Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. They're put together. The foundation is Jesus. And the apostles laid that foundation. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. So see through Scripture, all through the New Testament, the correlation between submitting to Jesus and the teaching of the apostles. This is the one authority that all of us in this room, if you call yourself a Christian, you must bow down and submit to. This is truth. This is your word. This is your Scriptures. The one authority... The man Jesus, raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father with all authority over heaven and earth, delegated these men, including Paul here, 
capital A apostles, so that the gospel could be written down and preserved for you and me today. If we lose the apostles' teaching, we lose Christ. We lose the gospel. If we lose scripture, we lose hope. This church is built on a foundation of God's word is true, it is reliable, that the apostles were first-hand eyewitnesses and what they recorded for us, there's no reason why we should doubt what they wrote down was true. They had nothing to gain from it. They all died for their faith, martyred, killed, persecuted. And so will we. So many of us, as we uphold this gospel, we too will be persecuted. We too will see the, the world balk against these things. Think of Martin Luther, the man we've quoted earlier. He was kicked out of the church and he was anathematized for proclaiming this truth. He said that as he looked at the Catholic church that they had elevated the Pope's authority to equal or even at times above the apostles' teaching in scripture. And he thought that was a threat to the gospel, so he says, I consider it proper that the words of Scripture are to be preferred to all human words. There is no pope above the word of God. All of them are under the word of God, according to Galatians 1.8. Even if we or even an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what you've received, let him be accursed. This is the one authority we should submit to, all of us, the pope included. Even Paul the apostle includes himself, even if we what a strange statement. Even if I come back to you and I preach a different gospel than the one you heard from me that was delivered from Jesus, that's a false gospel. Do, do away with me even. It's that first original message that I passed on to you from Jesus. That's the true gospel. So even if an angel, like could he say something more strong than saying an angel comes down, hey Michael, you come down and preach a gospel message that's contrary to the one Jesus delivered? Well, go to hell, he says. Be accursed. Damn you. I mean, this is very strong defensive language. So friends, let us submit to the scriptures, uphold them. Believe that there is one authority, Jesus Christ, the head of this church, and that is mediated through the scriptures that Christ gave to the apostles to record. Second point, there is one gospel that we are allowed to then preach. Let's read verses 6 through 9 again. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So Paul is capital A apostle. All got that? As we see Paul writing several letters to different churches, as he establishes churches, the one thing that almost everybody notices is that he does not include a thanksgiving introduction like he does in all of his other letters. Remember what I said? It gets defensive from the start. Not, not, not. No, that's not true. This is what's true. If you don't believe that, then go to hell. That's what he's saying. Does that tone sound a little defensive to you? So when some have suggested, well, 
Galatians is Paul's first letter that he ever wrote, so maybe he just hasn't established the pattern of writing thanks yet, and so that's why there's no thanksgiving here. I don't buy that whatsoever. He seems to be aggressive from the start and have no thanksgiving to this church because they are deserting the gospel. So contrast a church that has somebody sleeping with their stepmom in the church and everybody knows about it. And they can't figure out who they like best to teach the Bible to and some people like that guy, another like another guy. They have all kinds of divisions amongst them. And think of a church that's, same church by the way, same church has all kinds of worship wars and battles about how they're going to do worship together and how they're going to use spiritual gifts. There's all kinds of chaos in the worship service. And then there's these people fighting about who's going to eat which food sacrificed to idols. I'm talking about the Corinthian church. And at the start of that letter, Paul says, I thank my God for all of you. With all that going on, I thank my God for you. And you could go down the line in all these different churches that have these issues within them, sin issues, battles with different theologies. But if you start to deny the gospel, Paul says, I am so astonished. I am upset. I am amazed. So quickly turned away is the very similar phrase written in the Greek translation of the book of Exodus that we just finished going through in regards to the Ten Commandments. So this should be fresh in your minds. God gives his people in Israel at Mount Sinai ten commandments. We just read them earlier in the service. And then they promise, we will obey them. Thank you, God, for these ten commandments. We're going to keep them flawlessly. We will do so well at obeying them. Thank you, thank you, thank you, God. We're going to obey. And then what do they do? The language is they so quickly turned to worship idols. I think Paul is using that language and that story right here to say, I am so astonished that you are just like those Israelites. I just came through and preached the good news of Christ and the freedom that you can have from the law and that Christ has accomplished it and that you are dead to the law and that you just have wonderful freedom of God's amazing grace. And then I leave and then I hear so quickly, so quickly you turn to another gospel. Like imagine me taking a six-month leave of absence and then hearing that somebody writes a letter, yeah, we brought in these preachers and they just preach self-help stuff and your best life now and make lots of money here and now and it's all about this world. I mean, do you think that I would be a little upset? Like, what are you guys doing? I just left for six months so quickly. All of these years and prayers and tears and work and effort and here, this is what you do? That's what Paul's like here. These Galatians are turning away not just from the Pauline teaching. Notice the language. Read verse 6 again. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. Oh, that, that phrase right there. That stopped me in my tracks. I think it should do too. The Galatians are turning away from God himself. Because think about this for a moment. The whole first two chapters of this book, Paul is defending his capital A apostleship. No, I saw Jesus, he was alive and resurrected, and so trust me guys, this is a true trustworthy word. He's doing that for two chapters. And right when he gets started, he doesn't say, well, I'm really disappointed that you turned away from my teaching. That kind of hurt me. He says, no, I am upset, I am astonished that you turned away from him. 
You left him. Him, him who called you by his grace, the grace of Christ. Do you see how affectionate he's thinking? You're missing out how precious Christ is to him. His focus is not on his personal authority in that moment. It is on the authority of God himself. You're turning from God. When you've turned away from my gospel, you're turning away from the very God who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Him. You're turning away from him. It's a personal thing. Have you noticed that your sin is personally sinning against and turning away from God? Or do you just think of it as, well, it's just my personal business? All of our sin, even sins to one another, private sins, they're turning away from God and turning away from the gospel. That's the biggest slap of face in the face of all. And notice this is language. You're turning to a different gospel. It's the word that has the root hetero in it, like we have the word heterosexual, like two different natures, male and female. He's saying that this gospel that you've turned to has a completely different nature. It's of hetero origin. And then that's why he says, it's not like there is another gospel. There's only one nature of this gospel, and it's either this or it's that. So he uses the word In verse 7, not that there is another one. In that phrase, he's saying, like the Holy Spirit. When Jesus says, I'm going to send another one. That's because Jesus is sending the Holy Spirit, one of the same nature. There's not another gospel of the same nature. There's just one gospel. And he tells them that they have distorted it, changed it. You see that in verse 7. And you want to distort the gospel of Christ. He uses the language of inverting or turning around backwards and in on itself. I think the best way to summarize this is that you've got it backwards. You've inverted the message of the gospel and so perverted it. So think of it like this. In another letter, Paul's writing to the Ephesians church and he says this is the gospel. We were all children of God's wrath and dead in our trespasses and sins, but because of God's grace, he saved us. For it's by grace that you're saved, through faith. Not by your works. No, that was a gift of God, that you even had faith or grace to believe. So that no one would boast, God would get all the credit and glory. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. That we're all saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. A gift from God. That's how the gospel starts. Some people forget that the verse continues. The passage goes on in verse 10 and it says, For God created you as his workmanship to do good works. So does the gospel preach a message to us that good works don't matter? Well, of course not. Read the whole passage. Keep reading. Don't just stop and say, you're saved by grace, not by any human efforts or works whatsoever, so just do whatever you want. God will save you and forgive you. That's not the gospel. Don't just do whatever you want. God created you to be saved so that you would do good works that he prepared in advance for you to do. The, the, the difference is the order. And he's telling them, you have inverted the order. You have spun it around. 
these people, these some, as you see in verse 8, some, or verse 7, some of those who trouble you, that's the word to agitate, they're causing all kinds of trouble because they have reversed the order and they've said, no, if you want to be a true Christian, you must first be circumcised. You must obey the laws of Moses and these customs. And that's what we'll find all through Galatians. And so they put that first and then God's grace. It's flipped around. He's saying that has completely got it backwards. Grace through faith, not by works, gift from God. That's the gospel. And that gospel changes and transforms hearts to do good works. So the gospel of grace through faith is the root of your salvation and your good works are the fruit that come out. You don't stick the fruit into the ground first. You stick the seed of the gospel into the heart first. So this is what he is saying by distorting or inverting the gospel. It is the wrong order. This is why even if an angel or he himself as an apostle or anyone else is to preach a backwards message of works plus grace, Jesus plus something, they should be accursed. They should be shut up. They should not be allowed in the church anymore. They are leading people astray. And so this church, Embassy Church, must stand and contend for this truth. May this pulpit never reverse the order. May we never preach Jesus plus something equals salvation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything, including your sanctification and your good works that are the fruit of that beautiful good news. Are you willing to contend for this truth? It's not very popular to say that there is one gospel, that there are no other gospels. There are no other messages, no other teachers, no other saviors. Christ alone, cornerstone. He's the one who makes the weak strong. When you sang that, did you believe it? Did you really believe Christ alone, nothing but the blood? Nothing. Just a little? No, nothing. Just blood. Just the death resurrection, ascension of Jesus' work, that's it. Just recently, President Donald Trump picked as his deputy director for the Office of Management and Budget, Russell Vaught, former employee for Wheaton College here in the Chicago suburbs. He was challenged by a senator that I will remain nameless for the sake of political issues you all might have. But the story illustrates the antagonism that our world has to anybody who says, Christ alone, nothing but the blood. Russell Vaught has been cited in articles that he has written by saying Jesus alone is the way to salvation. And at one point, because of some controversies going on at Wheaton about whether or not Islam is an appropriate way to make the way to God the Father, he responded by saying Muslims do not have deficient theology. They do not even know the true God because they have rejected him. His name is Jesus, and so therefore they stand condemned. Bold, but true words. And so, one of the members that was receiving this nomination from President Trump, one of the members of our Senate said, not Illinois, but 
In the United States Senate said, in my view, this statement that has been made by Mr. Vaught is indefensible. It is hateful. It is Islam Islamophobic. It is an insult to billions of Muslims all through the world. This country from its inception has struggled, sometimes with great pain, to over overcome discrimination of all forms. We must not go backwards. I would say, Mr. Chairman, this nominee is someone that our country should not be about. I am voting no. So much for the land of the free. If one of our senators can be on public television and on record, and my guess is many of you maybe haven't even heard this story because of course the press isn't going to talk a bunch about this. Are you willing to stand like Mr. Vaught did in front of that committee and say, yes, I still believe those words to be true. And no, I don't believe I'm Islamophobic. I believe in the dignity of all human people made in the image of God. How about you? Are you willing to stand with Paul and men like Russell Vaught and say, there is no other gospel? Embassy shouldn't preach another gospel. You shouldn't proclaim another gospel. And you should not back down if you were ever put in that seat and asked, do you still believe those words? Well, what is this gospel? There's one authority we submit to, and it's Christ. There's one gospel we proclaim. Now, what is it? It's the one that rescues. There's only one that rescues. Let's read verses 3 through 5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you see why I wanted to finish here? It just ends in doxology. It leads us right into worship and song and praise. Grace and peace has come from God our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave himself for, and this word for, sometimes in our English we don't realize that there can be different meanings in its original language. So the word's for, but it means on behalf of. That would be a more wordy translation. So he gave himself on behalf of our sins. Christ came for our sins. He took our place. He became our substitute. That's all packed in to these words. Gave himself for our sins to deliver, rescue, save us from the danger and the threat that we have from the present evil age. Now that's not a familiar phrase that we use a lot, but in a Jewish worldview, you think of the general world, and it's, and it's the age. And then there's going to be the day when God breaks in, and when he breaks in, then he is going to bring the age to come. That's the way they saw the world. There's the age, and then there's the age to come. Paul calls the first age of the world the evil age, the present evil age. But he also teaches that when God comes down onto the earth, he's breaking into that age, and he is inaugurating, he is starting and declaring that the new age has become finally here. The waiting, the praying, the longing, the, the asking God, come, 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 start the new age. Christ is that Messiah that came and started the new age to come with his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. So he can deliver us from the present evil age by us being united with his death and his resurrection to then be united with him in the new age to come. Now, even now. So this is not like a future deliverance or salvation. It is a salvation that begins right here and now by faith in Christ's death, his blood on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. 
And all of this, he says, is according to God's will. God planned it. God ordained it from before the foundation of the world. He knew the sin that would come into the world. He planned the death of Jesus. It was prophesied in Isaiah 53 that it was the will of God to crush the Son. And Jesus Christ executed that plan perfectly. And as he sits at the right hand of the Father, offering all of us with all authority on heaven and earth, the only voice that truly matters, the only word that you really must obey is that word of Jesus. He calls all of us right now to continue to either keep on believing or for the very first time believe that God deserves all glory, all praise, all honor because the gospel is the good news that Christ has come. He has lived the perfect life. He has died the death that you deserved because of your sins. He lived a sinless life. He then rose again three days later. He lived for 40 days as a real man. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. Heaven came down to earth and earth came back to heaven. And he now has access to that God, that Father. And there's only one person, one mediator, one high priest that we pray to, can be saved through, and it's Jesus Christ. An illustration might help. Have you ever gone swimming? It's summertime. Have you ever gone swimming and found yourself drowning? Or struggling? Imagine yourself in that moment. Imagine yourself swept away by the undercurrent of the ocean, getting deeper and deeper out. You know what you need in that moment? You don't need somebody to throw you a manual for how to swim. What you don't need is somebody to come beside you and be your swim coach. Teach you how to swim. What you need in that moment is rescue. You need someone to come just save you. And so Jesus Christ saw us in our sin drowning in this present evil age. I don't need to remind all of us of the evil, not only in your own heart, but all over this world. We are drowning in our sin. And the bad news of the Bible is far worse than many of you have ever even dared dream. But it's just because of that bad news that God gets all glory and praise where he enters into that world. He dives right into the water and all the sin around us. And he himself, he gave himself. He rescued us and the only way he could do it was by doing it in such a way where he himself had to die in our place. So you're safely on the land. And Christ has washed away in the ocean of our sin. Do you see how that message of the gospel, how he personally did that for each one of us, would be a slap in the face to then say, oh, but let me do this to add to that work. Do you know every time a lifeguard tries to save someone, they say, just lay still. Quit trying to swim. Quit trying to add. You're going to drown both of us. And that's what happens every time we try and add to Christ's rescue work. You, know, you not only don't get rescued yourself, but you lose the whole rescue of the gospel to begin with. Just let go.
and let Jesus rescue you from your sin. To all honor and glory forever and ever, may God be the glory. It's by grace and peace. So we began by asking, do you believe that just a few paragraphs could change your life? What was the paragraph that changed Mr. Holland's life and John and Charles Wesley and Martin Luther's commentary in Galatians? Let me read it again one more time. When Mr. Charles Wesley read the preface aloud and he read those words, what? Have we then nothing to do? No, nothing but only accept him, the God through Christ who has made our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. What was the sentence that changed the entire Western world? Is there nothing to do? Just accept all that Christ is for us. That's it. changed all of the history of our world. Nothing. No, nothing. One old English preacher used to put it this way, all that you need is need. All you need is to know your need. All you need is to feel your need of him and accept him. Or as we sang, Earlier in our hymn, not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. So nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash new Savior or I die pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you great thanks for sending Jesus Christ. He is our justification. He is our sanctification. He is our adoption. He is our glorification, our redemption. He is everything. We thank you for Christ, that you did not throw a book into our great ocean of sin as we're drowning in our sin. You do not throw a teacher that taught us how to swim. You sent a person. You gave yourself. So we ask that we would be thankful, that our thanksgiving and gratitude would lead to good works even today, that our hearts would be warmed, and that throughout this study of Galatians, we would be able to rejoice that it's nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.